served with hoorah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby. Done. Hi, and welcome to Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. I'm your host, Gabby Dunn. Usually our show covers topics that are a little bit closer to the ground. But today we're going to be talking about something futuristic. Spoiler alert, it's not as futuristic as it's made out to be. Today's guest, Dan Olson, has made my favorite movie. You haven't seen it in theaters or on DVD. It's a two and a half hour long YouTube video. Most of it consists of Dan talking directly to the camera at various angles. And it's fascinating. The video is called Line Goes Up, The Problem with NFTs, and it's a point-by-point takedown of cryptocurrency and non-fungible tokens, specifically with context, history, vocabulary, and accessibility. I spend a lot of time talking to you all, my listeners, directly via my Discord channel. You've seen me on the Discord. If you're on the Discord, I pop up every so often and comment and engage in a little discussion with you guys. So... I saw that on it, a few of you were still confused by last week's Bad With Money Part 1 on cryptocurrency and NFTs with Stefan Thomas and Clara Volstead. This episode with Dan is Part 2. One of you called Part 1 a multiple listen kind of episode, and I get it. In preparation for these episodes, I've been studying this stuff like hyperfixating as I am wont to do, and I've just barely begun to understand it. So hopefully Part 2 will clear some of this up. Dan Olson does an incredible job here on this show going over the basics and using real-world words and scenarios to explain what is meant to seem exclusionary smart and for the dedicated only. This is for the evangelicals. This is for the diehards. This is for people in the know. Okay? Dan will break that down for you. So it may help to listen to this one first, actually, and then go back and listen to part one again, or listen to this one and then go listen to part one. I may have gotten the order wrong here, guys. I apologize. Dan gets into what is the blockchain, what exactly is an NFT, but all sorts of other stuff. I mean, he explains these terms that, like in general finance and tech spaces, have been created purposely to keep people out, maintain hierarchies, and make those not involved feel stupid, old, and out of touch. You are none of those things. And we're going to get into that with Dan. Hello, my name is Dan Olson, aka Foldable Human. I'm a YouTube documentarian, Twitch streamer, Twitter jokester, kind of all over the place digital content creator. So the video that you made, the line goes up, that has like seven or eight million views. Uh, It might be my favorite movie. I've watched it so many times. It is my Lord of the Rings, I think. What made you make the video? The initial NFT craze that broke mainstream following the Beeple sale, the $69 million Beeple sale, and all of the the like decade-old Reddit memes, you know, uh, overly obsessed girlfriend, disaster girl, creepy Chan, sort of in that phase where it was really breaking into the mainstream, I started scripting 
just kind of a uh, a breakdown of like what was going on because the thing I've been following cryptocurrency in in one form or another since 2009 like when when Bitcoin actually first came out I was paying attention to it I like bought some Bitcoin in 2011 it's long gone to Mount Gox and the FBI at this point and the thing that I always found I found interesting about it in 2009 and 2010 2011 was there was very much like a narrative of, of what it was and what it was intended to do and who it was for and where this was all going. And so I initially was tampering with it to see like, okay, there's always a disconnect between like hype and reality. And if you work in filmmaking, you deal with that all the time because there's always someone who's promising like, oh, here's the brand new thing that's going to revolutionize the industry. We're going to change everything about the way things function. And nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, nothing changes. Um, you know, nothing, nothing really meaningfully changes. And so I, I was like, okay, like, let's see if the hype is real. And in playing with Bitcoin in 2010, 2011, it was just like, no, it's not, it's not there. Transaction times are awful. Just the user experience was just so oblique. It was, it was just really bad as a user experience. I was like, no, nah, you're, you're, you're ages away from this being the kind of thing that like, my parents would engage with out of anything other than like desperation necessity. I already had kind of this history of like evaluating cryptocurrency from this narrative perspective that it's like you have this mythologizing that is 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 deeply disconnected from the actual experience of of using it and doing things with it and what you can do with it. You get this big NFT surge and I start looking into it and it was like it was the same kind of thing. I'm like it's like okay, here's what you're saying is going on, but visibly, materially that's not actually backed up by the thing itself. You're talking about like a hypothetical version as though it already exists. And you're trying to sell that hypothetical version as the thing that people can go out and buy right now. When it's not clear if it will exist, can exist, is anyone even actually working on it? Or is it just a thing that someone's like, oh, like, there's a classic Simpsons bit where Dr. Nick has his diet where you can eat anything you want and you'll still lose weight? Aha, uh -huh. it's a free country! You know, that it's like, it's like, okay, like this thing can do all of this. It's like, oh, like, can it do this? It's like, well, it's a free country. I like, is anybody actually doing it? No. And that was the thing that I, that I started to realize that it was like, there was all these claims that were just backed up by like nothing. And I started, so I started writing and then it took like a whole year, almost, you know, uh, eight months or something like that. That's what I was going to ask is how long it took to put together. But why do you think other journalists or other people covering this are so unquestioning? Because it's easy. People are generally credulous by default, both because like people generally want to be trusting. They want to see themselves as trusting um, and because it's easy to trust. And so if somebody says that it's like, oh, we're building a system to feed orphans. You really want to believe them like, you know, there's a, we you've kind of got this feeling of guilt if you're like, oh, well, I don't believe that you're actually feeding orphans. That feels like a, a an almost exceptional counterclaim to make that that puts a lot of onus on you. So it's just it's it's easier emotionally. It's easier in just literal time to just take the things that people are claiming they're doing. And, you know, maybe you throw a little bit of skepticism on top and just say it's like, well, you know, temper your expectations. What? 
what I really started to find as I was digging deeper is that just tempering your expectations, just assuming that people are like lightly exaggerating was completely insufficient, like to the point that somebody saying that you were effectively just doing the myth making for them, even if you were sprinkling a little bit of uh, a little bit of like, oh, well, you know, it probably won't be quite as idealistic as they claim, but keep your eyes open. So how did you go about explaining things like these very complex topics because I think sometimes with a lot of money stuff but especially with crypto it's made to seem like it's very complicated and if you don't get it you're just not getting it and you're just not smart enough so how did you make sure that things were being explained in, in a way that like could be conceptualized by the average viewer yeah so I've got a long history of dealing with people who deliberately obfuscate stuff. If we just use really complicated language, we can make this thing seem inaccessible. And out of that, we can build this narrative that like, oh, well, I get it. You should just trust me because you can't get it. You are incapable of understanding it. Whenever I have students, I tell them this, that is like, there is nothing on this planet that another human has figured out that you are incapable of learning. It's simply a matter of framing and, and time and effort. You, you are physically capable of doing that. So I take that and I take, I, I take great pride in being able to take difficult things, complicated things, and teach them. Like, okay, what is it? Why does it behave the way that it does? And what does that mean for me? So this is all going to get back into the marketing of Bitcoin and, and the futuristic coolness to it. But uh, you start with the mortgage crisis, which you say created rage and distrust and confusion. And so how how was Bitcoin presented around that time, like as an end to banks? And like, why did that hit with people? The initial pitch of Bitcoin was was very much this almost like militant revolutionary stance. It was very much like this is digital gold. It behaves like gold. It has been designed like gold. We need a return to the gold standard because moving away from the gold standard is, you know, is the original sin that has allowed the mortgage crisis to come into existence. Turns out it's a lie. It's it's actually it is actually just straight up false. And there are tremendous holes in that. But it took me years to learn, like, why that is, in fact, false. It's an easily packaged narrative. It hinges on things that are tangible, like that you can comprehend. And the thing is, is it's not completely inaccurate because there is a certain degree of like, okay, the problem is that so like gold You can understand a brick of gold. You can conceptualize a brick of gold and why a brick of gold is valuable. And it's moving away from that that has allowed things to become too oblique, too vague, like it's all just numbers in a computer. And that has allowed people to like obfuscate what they're doing and thus allowed the like mortgage crisis to to come into existence. And that part's not entirely inaccurate. A large thing that allowed the mortgage crisis to happen is in fact that the finance industry was allowed to create all of these layers of obfuscation that allowed them to create financial instruments that were too complex for anyone to understand. And so people were buying things based off of simplifications that was just straight up myth making from people who had a vested interest in you buying what they were selling. So so that level of obfuscation 
absolutely was part of what allowed the uh, allowed the mortgage crisis to exist. The problem is is that create like going back to the gold standard or moving to digital gold doesn't actually do anything to prevent that from happening. Why? Because as we can see right now, what's happening like is we're seeing the exact same thing where you've got crypto assets that are based off of conglomerations of other crypto assets as backing that are themselves based off of valuations that come from ex nihilo coins that are like created out of nothing that are given a valuation based off of like a single sale that means it's like oh look we sold one for like 50 bucks that means we have a market cap of 75 billion dollars and it's like oh you've got a market cap of 75 billion dollars okay well we're going to take a couple of your coins and we're going to use those as the backing for our coin and we're going to say that our stable coin now has like 70 billion dollars of backing it's all of these layers of obfuscation that that crypto and digital gold have done nothing to prevent from happening because they're they're actually completely unrelated actions. Yeah, I had this lower in my list of questions, but what you just described is an MLM. So, and you talked about axes as being one. So, can you go a bit more into like how exactly this is an MLM? Oh boy, where to start with the with the MLM uh, breakdown? The whole thing when you launch an MLM is you want to try to create your operating costs like as low as possible. So you find a product that costs you basically nothing and then you put like tremendous markups on it and then you build a business structure around this garbage product, cheap steak knives, bad vacuums, whatever it is, uh, both of which I have sold in the past. Um, (laughs) Magnets. So you you get your product at an absolute minimum cost and then you build your business structure around it, which in in a pure pyramid scheme is built entirely around like downline building as the actual source of revenue. The person kind of two layers down, they don't make any money by selling product. They make money by recruiting other people and selling those people starter packages of product. And so all product sales are ultimately internal. How that translates to crypto is kind of this very similar thing. Like the basic thing would be that like I can just create a coin ex nihilo. I can just sit here like in 20 minutes and spin up a new token and it costs me nothing functionally nothing to create a new token. I can just put it out there and start like giving it away, start selling it, start whatever. All I need to do is I just need to build a myth around it. I just need to build a narrative, a story that makes it sound valuable so that I can convince other people to to buy it. So I give you this coin and say, it's like, okay, thanks for coming on to my podcast, Gabby. As payment for your time, here's a bunch of Dan coin. I've, I've paid you for our participant. And you go, it's like, well, what's Dan coin worth? It's like, well, Dan coin's worth like five bucks each. You know, it's like I, I gave you 20, 20 Dan coin. Like I just, it's like, there you go. I just, I paid you a hundred bucks for coming on my podcast, but I haven't actually paid you. I've given you Dan coin and just told you that it's worth five bucks each. And in order for you to realize that you need to find somebody else who's willing to, to give you five dollars for the Dan coin. And so it's you're taking the actual like value 
transfer and moving it as many layers from yourself as possible. Where this starts to get really complicated in crypto is when you get these like a coin that is denominated in another coin that's denominated in another coin that's denominated in Ethereum that's denominated in dollars. And so you're paying people with assets that you have generated out of nothing just by copying a GitHub paste bin. You've copy pasted a GitHub repository and just created this coin. And you're now just like telling people like, oh yeah, it's worth something. Go prove that it's worth that by like trading it for something else. All of those trades are used as like the reference point for inflating the back values. Gabby was able to sell it for five bucks. Therefore, all one billion coins that I've created sitting at my computer doing nothing, all one billion of those must be equally worth five dollars. I have a market cap of five billion dollars. I have just instantly created a market cap of five billion dollars. And now I can take that and I can use that as the foundation for my next story, which is I have this coin that's worth five billion dollars. Therefore, I should be able to like borrow money against that. Well, clearly I don't want to liquidate all billion coins because that would be, you know, that would be a lot of effort and it would create an instability. But can I use those coins concept, like we leave them where they are and I just use them as leverage. I just use them as the backing for taking a loan and someone else is like, yeah, 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 we'll get, we'll give you, we'll give you a loan of Luna coin at, for, like based off of this this collateral and and it just creates this utterly incoherent market with it has no actual liquidity the degree of liquidity is single digit percent way down at the bottom behind layer and layer and layer and layer and layer of obfuscation but if you are the person who does that do you get to like exist as a millionaire and like live the life of a millionaire maybe depends on how well you play the game because if if you play it really well you're the intersection point where dollars get introduced into the system and they don't really get introduced into the system they just get introduced into your bank account so you're giving me five bucks for dan coin and that money is not going anywhere except my pile of cash in the other room but then that's why these people feel like they're smart because they feel yeah. like they're like gaming something. And yeah. maybe they are. You know, there, there are people in this mix who are successfully gaming something. I mean, and usually the thing that they're gaming is, you know, retail buyers, which is kind of like that's the thing that makes it disgusting. By and large, what you're doing is you're taking this bigger institutional narrative and you're using it to convince people who can't afford to take these levels of risks. And you're convincing them that the risk is vastly lower than it actually is. Because you're saying it's like, oh, well, DanCoin has a market cap of $5 billion. $5 billion doesn't just dry up. And it's like, but I'm not disclosing that $5 billion is based off of an extrapolation of a half dozen sales. Uh It's just big numbers. Yeah. Okay. Coming up, more from Folding Ideas' Dan Olson. Okay, 
So the marketing of Bitcoin, in your video, that is something that really stuck with me, the the putting it on Times Square billboards, yeah. the flashy stuff, which is like, you know, it looks like it's being used. It looks like it's futuristic, putting the signs on 7-Elevens or, you know, KFC saying we take Bitcoin, all of that kind of stuff that like wasn't really actually true. It was just meant to make it look like Bitcoin was being used. Yeah. And then the one thing that tripped me up is that I... From all of that marketing, I had no idea the transaction times were slow. Zero. Zero oh, yeah, concept yeah, yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah. Zero concept of that. So can you explain like how that happened? And also like you are not going to be able to buy KFC with Bitcoin because the transaction time is like hours, right? Potentially. Okay, so so how it happened, there's this revolutionary new social tech, the interpersonal social tech called lying. <laughs> Okay, well, Where you take information and you hide it. It was just that simple. This was a thing that drove me wild. Like, because I watched this happen in slow motion. I was really involved on Reddit. It happened in my neighborhood where suddenly, like, I saw, like, Bitcoin accepted here stickers showing up on, like, businesses. And having had not just hands-on experience with Bitcoin, hands-on experience with, like, fast food working. I've done till work, and I've zeroed out the till at the end of the night. I've done the paperwork, finalized the credit receipts and, like, all that stuff. And just having, like, that little bit of hands-on knowledge with, like, I have bought something with Bitcoin. I have worked behind the till of a fast food place. There is absolutely a 0% chance that this business actually does that and you go in and you ask it's like so do you actually take bitcoin and the person behind the tills just like we say we do but no one has ever asked and my boss told me that if anyone asked we just say that the system is down right now do they have something else? oh my god <sighs> okay yeah so maybe in some cases someone came along and dropped off like a box that plugged into an ethernet port that in theory was the like bitcoin payment processor and it just literally never worked like it turned on it powered up and like words would appear on the screen, but it would it would never actually successfully finalize a transaction. But what if someone was like, I am paying in Bitcoin. You say on the door, I can pay in Bitcoin. I will be paying in Bitcoin. Well, so what do you do if you go into uh, you go into a subway and you want to pay with your visa and they're like the, wow. the like it's declined like it's like it's just like I don't know what it is like the thing's not working like I'm I'm pushing the buttons and it's not doing anything I'm not a tech like what do you want yeah. your sandwich do you have any like what else do you have do you, do you have five bucks in your and the thing is is that you can get away with that for like years and years and years because as an individual how many times are you going to try to pay with bitcoin well like statistically right. zero and if it fails the first time you're probably just going to be like it's like eh, bad experience not going to try again how many times will it take for the system to be down before you realize that the system is never up right it's not for those things that it was advertised as for it's for people online to keep trading it for what it is and and using it to buy things like digitally this is just marketed in this way. Yeah, it's for optics. It's for yeah. optics. Okay, so here's my next question. Is this science fiction's fault? Are we oh. all just trying to look cool? 
Is all of this just like, I want to be in the Matrix. I want to be a hacker. I want to look cool. Oh, boy. I want to live in the future where you can pay with Bitcoin. It's not not science fiction's fault. Well, this, thank you, this, Dan. Oh, this boy. is what I've this, come here this, for you to this tell this me. This taps into, yeah, this taps into a whole bunch of stuff that I love talking about because people will be just like, oh, Star Trek predicted the future. And it's like, well, no, Star Trek didn't predict the future. Star Trek often, like the writers would find interesting articles about like the cutting edge of science and then be like oh hypothetically aluminum could be transparent and so they're like oh yeah the the windows on the enterprise are made of transparent aluminum then you get a whole generation of kids who like love star trek and then they get to college and they're like you know what i kind of want to be a material scientist six years later they've got a master's degree in uh in material science and there's like huh transparent aluminum would be pretty rad and because it was based and then they dig it up and it's like oh yeah here's this paper but from back in the 70s that's like hypothetically aluminum could be transparent. And so they start like working on that. Flip phones look the way that they do because nerds grew up with Star Trek and were like, man, you know what I really want? I want that flip communicator. I want a tricorder. I want to be able to do that. I want a tricorder. A whole bunch of like early plugins for the iPhone were explicitly people trying to make Star Trek happen. And so fiction and reality have this really delicious interplay with each other where people invent things to try to make fiction reality and then fiction plays off of them to try to create wouldn't it be cool scenarios. There is definitely a social interplay there between cyberpunk fiction that has been utilized by cryptocurrency to market itself. As like, oh, we are the fulfillment of that hyper-capitalist dystopia where centralized entities have vast spying powers over the daily lives of individuals. Wow, why why did you build that again? Please do not build the the Torment Nexus. Yeah, so this is what I'm wondering is that anyone who would push back is like, I'm just ahead or I'm just cool. Or I'm it's just still like, early. Have fun staying poor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so this is my next question. Like, how important is the creation of new jargon? Which, by the way, here's the thing, right? Yeah. On this show, we talk so often about the jargon of Wall Street. Yeah. And the way that it's used to keep people out, the ways that things are talked about, acronyms, things like that, that you're just like expected to know. And if you don't, you're an idiot. Yeah. And so like this thing that's supposed to be democratizing Isn't this just like more of a way to just create this jargon to make things seem more legitimate and more complex than they are so that you can be like, well, I am doing this because I know all the inside stuff. And this leads to like my whole other thing where I'm like, I think these people just want friends. Boy, we can we can talk about that. Yeah, but even in my friend group, we have inside jokes. You know what I mean? Like I feel like that's what it is. Yeah. So humans humans create jargon and inside jokes and internal communication just like reflexively like we're very 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 good at it i've spent you know 17 years playing world of warcraft you see it there in like in game communities where what starts as just a simplification of communication that it's like okay like we have we have information that we need to use very regularly but because we're communicating in a principally text-based like we're using chat windows we don't want to type out the entire thing so we shorten it and we create a lot of initializations and eventually like those compound to the point that chat becomes unintelligible 
to someone who hasn't been reading it for years and watching that language evolve. And so that happens just kind of reflexively with online communities. And the more insular they are, like kind of like the faster it happens and the more naturally it happens. And cryptocurrency is very insular. It's very online. It's full of a lot of people who are kind of like used to doing this. Tech people and finance people who have very specific interactions with jargon. And so you end up with crypto, which is just very dense with internal communication. And some of that is just normal human interaction in any kind of uh, in any kind of subgroup. And a lot of it gets turned into this control oriented language that is used very explicitly to delineate the in-group from the out-group. You can figure that out by like evaluating internal communication. So if an internal communication is incomprehensible because it's mostly like shorthand, like everything's just being like initialized, then it's like, okay, that's an efficiency thing. And so rather than typing out ribonucleic acid over and over and over again, it's like RNA. It's when you start seeing like social separators that it becomes interesting. And by interesting, I mean evil. And that's where you get like hodlers, diamond hands, paper hands, you know, ways of describing participants within the community that has a very definite implicit judgment call underneath it. The biggest ones, like I... My biggest resentment over the last year is that I finally needed to, like, really learn what bearish and bullish mean. I needed to learn a whole lot of Wall Street lingo, and I resent that. And you hear somebody say, like, oh, I'm getting really bullish on this thing, and it makes me want to choke them. It's just kind of like, you can just say the regular words, but it's it's to keep people from investing their own money or working with their own money, but... Almost with crypto, it seems like it's to keep people out in like a social way and a financial way. And even with NFTs, right? When NFTs first like started being talked about, the big thing that I saw people saying was, what does that even mean? What does it stand for? What does it mean? And then when they were like, it stands for non-fungible token, it was still like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. (laughs) Right. So what can you explain like how that happened? Where did we get to NFTs? Oh, boy. Redo so, your whole video for me, Dan. Redo your whole uh, video for me, Dan. Okay, so the the kind of like in, inciting thing was just a question of like, okay, using cryptocurrency technology, can we create a class of token that can represent a specific object? One of the original sins of Bitcoin that makes it so like bad and has created a problem called the dust problem is that... Every coin is very specifically tracked. Isn't the whole point that it's not tracked? No. Because the whole the whole point, the original point of Bitcoin, one of one of its foundational sort of myths was this like digital gold thing. And it was that like the treasury does not know how much money is actually out there. The treasury just like estimates how much money is out there because they just keep creating too much of it. In Bitcoin, we will know exactly how much money is out there because we know where every single Bitcoin is. But it's just anonymous. Is that the thing? Yeah, yeah, and then it's oh. it's pseudonymous. So it's like, but we, but every single coin, we oh. can, we know, like you know, a coin can't get lost under the couch. If it falls into the bottom of the river, we know that it's at the bottom of the river because we can see it's there. So if if bitcoins get locked up in a burnt wallet that nobody has access to, like, sure, nobody can get to them, mm-hmm. but we, we know, know they're they there. So they thought, okay, we could do that with 
object? Well, so Bitcoins were individually tracked. So if I give you one Bitcoin, I am giving you a very specific Bitcoin. And we can see the exact like history of that coin. The metaphor that's used is that it's like you've got a $20 bill in your wallet. You can see the whole history of like everyone who has interacted with that specific $20 bill. Got it. But you run into a lot of just very boring technical problems with that where you're tracking $20 bills, but then $20 bills are also subdividable. Like you can give somebody half of a $20 bill and it's giving them 10 bucks. And oh then my that, God. you know, so you end up with this dust problem where like if you want to buy one Bitcoin right now, chances are you're actually going to buy fragments of like 50 different Bitcoins because they've all been subdivided as they've been used for various different interactions. So it's like you buy something for one Bitcoin and then a little bit gets shaved off for the uh, for the transaction fees. I have never heard of this. Oh boy. Oh boy. It's it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. So so you have all of these like fragments of bitcoins these tiny tiny values that have been shaved off for like transaction fees that are then like lying around but need to be tracked individually because wallets don't contain a sum they don't contain a balance they contain a registry of exactly like every single coin that's sitting in it so imagine like if your bank account didn't just tell you like hey you've got 2500 bucks in your bank account it was actually just a list of like okay here are the serial numbers of all of the quarters, all of the singles, all of the fives, all of the 20s that are sitting in your bank account. You don't just have $2,500. You have a whole list of serial numbers. That's how Bitcoin operates. And the benefit is? There isn't one. Okay, great. So they thought, let's do that with objects or pictures. So th there isn't really a benefit to doing that with uh, with Bitcoin. It's necessary for it to function. And you might just say, like, okay, so this just sounds like a bad idea all the way down. But it's like, but what if we could use it for something that did make a little bit more sense, which would be something that you don't subdivide. And it's like, okay, so if we create like a unique digital object, you're taking this same principle of like, we're tracking each individual thing by its serial number, but we're not going to end up with the dust problem because they can't be subdivided. You can't shave a portion of this token off in order to like do something. You either move the entire token or you don't move it. This is clicking now. I yeah. see. Okay. And so the name non-fungible just ends up coming from kind of a very bland technical description of what you have. You have a token that's on the blockchain that cannot be subdivided and each one is unique. So it's non-fungible. It's like taking all of your little bitcoins and putting them into something that's that's now just one serial number. So it if, if I have a book, it's a physical object, it's bounded, it has so many pages. If I rip it in half, cleanly 50% down the middle, those halves are not equal to each other. Right. One of them is the front of the book. The other one's the back of the book. They have different words in them. Uh-huh. And so this is kind of like how an NFT is, is conceptualized, is that it's non-fungible. If you rip it in half, you actually would have like two different things. They would not be equivalent with each other. So really to have the whole thing, you need to keep it together. You move the book around, the first half and the second half of the book can't just be freely interchanged. Whereas if you have like a pile of quarters and you split that pile of quarters in half, like $10 of quarters split into two piles is two piles of $5 of quarters. And you can like scramble them and reassemble five, you know, two piles and it, it'll always just sum back up to $5 in each pile. So they were like, let's do this. And then they were like, let's do it with... Yeah, so so Memes? NFT, so the, well, so the original underlying technology was devised during a hackathon 
very quickly as just kind of like a proof of concept. And then because everybody in crypto is both lazy and bad at programming, they just kept going with it and never, never actually changed it. And so the protocol has like a whole bunch of deep security flaws and structural problems that never got fixed because no one in crypto actually ever revises anything that they do because they're bad programmers and shouldn't be trusted with building multi-billion dollar financial industries. So yeah, it was just kind of this need for like, what if we could track things, objects on the blockchain and interact with them on the blockchain and move them around in the same way that we move around bitcoins then from there it was like okay like what do we do with this and the first two things that really kind of came out of it were like crypto kitties you remember when grocery stores used to have those big like walls of like vending machines the red vending machines with the glass bubble you could get like you could get like stickers or you could get little like homies figure. You remember homies from like 2002? No, but I, I was very big into getting the random. You put the money in and it gives you a sticker. It gives you, it, you get a little plastic egg that's got a tiny oh, yeah, rubber yeah, yeah. figurine in it. Oh, so yeah. this was the first and to date principle. <laughs> dominant application of this NFT concept was to say, okay, well, what if we use it to denote basically homies figurines, but digital, and that's crypto kitties and and crypto punks, except, you know, they're not little rubber figurines, they're JPEGs. And you own that JPEG. Eh, You own a token that contains uh, a marker that points to that JPEG. The question of what you actually own is uh, suspect and is a big question mark that changes from uh, token to token. I had a, a someone else on the show. That's the only person that has like kind of given me some indication of NFTs as like a thing, which is uh, this artist, fine artist, who makes fine art and then is able to sell it and make money from her art. And that made sense to me in terms of NFTs operating as not something new, but in the same vein as Sotheby's or Christie's or going to these like big collectors who spend a bunch of money on art to begin with. Yeah, it's kind of this corner where the metaphors line up the best. Not just the metaphors line up, but also the like behaviors and interests of both buyers and sellers resemble each other a lot. The pushback that kind of keeps getting thrown at me about that is this like, oh, well, like, look at these people who are able to like make money in basically this digital version of the fine art world. That's proof that it's legitimate. Yeah. And I'm like, well, one, it's not democratizing the fine art world. It's literally the exact same people. Like it's still Christie's and Sotheby's. But then they say, oh, well, this privileged New York City kid who's able to sell their fine art. Yeah. But then it's mostly privileged New York City kids. (laughs) The players end up just Kind of have just wound up being the same. And the big thing is that it's like, is this a scalable solution? We could point to, if I pointed to Renaissance era patronage as like, oh, look, like, of course, this is a great system. Look at how much these artists get paid. It's like, yeah, but how many artists can that actually pay? Like, how many artists were employed full time by Renaissance level patronage? A few hundred at a time? Yeah. And it's like, okay, so that's not really a scalable solution. So the idea that like someone, can make money doing a thing. Of course, someone can make money doing a thing. There's a person out there who is making money by selling her bathwater. She's a really wild person. Good for her. I follow her career just to see what she cooks up next. But the thing is, is that it's like, okay, the fact that like a individual makes money doing that does not mean that there's a booming market for nerd girl bathwater.
bathwater. Yeah. You talked about the same players, and that's another thing that I wrote down, is that it was marketed as this democratizing thing that will help the people who lost their money in the mortgage crisis and it will never happen again and then kind of and it'll be for unbanked people and like instead it's just sort of replicating this like new tool for existing wealth these people who were already going to become rich or already were rich it's like a playground for them Winklevoss and it's like replicated the exact same systems of like people being rich for the sake of being rich and those people you're talking about like you know you don't know where every dollar is but like those people don't know they're so wealthy that like they don't know where all their money is it's all in these different places and it's just like this nebulous amount of wealth that we can't even conceptualize that just they can just pull from and it's some and it's offshore here and it's in a in an account here and they just never it's like it hasn't become that it's just replicated the system we already have because I think in your video you're like because people because people yeah the people who were building it just kind of said it's like oh well this will democratize wealth yeah and and you showed you know you showed these these big rigs and how it everyone sort of talks about oh you know crypto takes up a lot of energy but you you showed these videos and pictures where the room that you would need to have to be able to make the amount of money is not something someone who's going to KFC is going to have. Yeah, no. There were never any safeguards. The systems that were built were and remain pay to play. Therefore, people with more money get to play more. If you've got a lot of wealth, you can afford to be a risky early investor, which means you're the one who is most likely to actually see that thousand times, 10,000 times, 28,000 times returns on Bitcoin since 2013. And it's like, if you're not already rich, your Bitcoin investment doubles, triples, quadruples, and you start going like, damn, I need that money. I could use that right now to improve my life. And maybe you do, and good for you, but you don't get to be the person who sees tens of thousands of times returns unless you're the kind of person who can, in fact, just sit there and be like, I don't know, let's just watch it for a bit, see what it does. You need to be the kind of person who does not actually need that money. Yeah, you called it being the boot, I think. Or like becoming the boot. Yeah, so that's kind of where people want to be. They want to be that person who can sit back and be a Winklevoss and just be like, okay, I'm going to put $10,000 into Limecoin just to see what happens. And if that $10,000 disappears, I don't care. I want to be the kind of person who can manipulate markets if I so choose. We hear about this and we go, I want to be that guy. Because we understand that like that doesn't just translate to like emotional freedom and financial freedom, but it translates to power that's not very punk is it like the idea is like to be these like outsider rebels punks like we're the hackers we're the people that have access to this stuff that isn't hierarchical and isn't ruled by governments and blah 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 and then they're like i want to be the most rich person in that and then you're the enemy of what you were this becoming elon musk is not punk rock yeah no elon musk is the opposite of punk rock he's a he's the other kind of punk he's just he's a loser (laughs) 
I mean, so are you not paying taxes on Bitcoin or cryptocurrency? Is that what's happening? Like, it's very complicated. It's extremely complicated. And if you uh, if you troll through Twitter, you can see a bunch of crypto folks' tax returns. And it arrives in a box. And it's mean because, like, all of this stuff, like, as far as the institutions are concerned, to the degree that they regulate this stuff, they're like, okay, we don't have a firm belief in, like, what these things are yet, but they're clearly operating as securities. So for the time being, we're just going to treat them as securities and tax them as such, which means that like all of your interactions are taxed as capital gains, which is brutal. Capital gains, if you're a billionaire who doesn't actually touch dollars and like whatever, then capital gains taxes, you're going to complain about them a lot because the numbers get big, but your material life is never going to change no matter how high they crank capital gains because they're unwilling to crank it to where it should be like 99.999999. But if you're a dude who fancies yourself entering that level of class mobility and is dealing in NFTs and Bitcoin and your day trading cryptocurrency and you have like very ill-advisedly made that your income, suddenly you're just sitting in the highest tax bracket imaginable um, Mm. even though you're like end of year returns are like $16,000 and you're you're screwing yourself over very deeply. Oh my god. Okay. So this was um a comment on your video that said NFTs and crypto are just pointless tech bloat, another flat currency and don't hold value, whatever. Me after this video. NFTs and crypto are actively destructive and aren't just something I can write off as not for me, but something that should be actively opposed and stopped before it roots deeper into real life than it already has. So I see a lot of celebrities and there was a a recent thing where a trans woman of color celebrity was minting NFTs and everyone was like jumped on them in this sort of cancel culture way, which which seems to happen now. What is that about? Is it like this thing that is like this dire climate change economic like thing that anyone who posts about it we should all just be like no oh that's a complicated uh that's a complicated question i don't think ostracization is actually that extreme i think people do very intuitively and accurately understand that cryptocurrency is a trap that it is if not detrimental to to the climate yeah if not detrimental to the climate it is a transfer of wealth from as usual, the poor into the pockets of the wealthy. And people, I think, intuitively understand, they see they see the same shades of like, okay, you're just creating something deliberately incomprehensible so that you can put really big numbers into a spreadsheet and use those to generate other really big numbers and you're just, you're moving around smoke and who's going to end up holding the bag at the end of it? It's going to be either A, retail investors who bought your myth or B, people who didn't even know that their houses were being gambled on this stuff. So I think that people intuitively understand, people reflexively, like they look at crypto and they're like, this is Wall Street. I already don't trust Wall Street. Why should I trust crypto? So I don't think that ostracization, I don't think that pushback is necessarily like overreaction. I think there is definitely cases where it does become overreaction and people will always use anything like that as like an excuse to dig out whatever other bigotries they can attach onto it. And then the like pushback ends up taking on like misogynist transphobic racist vocabulary and that's absolutely reprehensible but as an abstract thing like i don't think pushback to people 
pushing NFTs, pushing crypto is bad. NFTs exist to get you to buy crypto and crypto exists to be this playground financial morass that is everything wrong with Wall Street turned up to 11, hopped up on cocaine and just set free in the worst imaginable way possible. And so I don't think people responding to that angrily is a bad thing. The reason why I think the video went viral is because it tapped into an emotion that people felt that you have all of this crypto garbage constantly pitched at us as the future, as inevitable, and there's a very strong intuitive sense when you look at it that it's like, no, it's not. You are wasting tremendous amounts of time, energy, and literal physical resources go away. And people were deeply hungry for a video that could take that anger and put it into words. My gut instinct that this makes no sense is accurate. Is there a world in which something like crypto could ever exist in the way that we're being pushed for it to exist? Hypothetically, you can write a story where people in that story have a functioning, just, unbiased, well-operating constabulary that maintains the peace and delivers justice to the members of the community that they that they Constabulary. Yeah, you can conceptualize that. Sure. Can we like can we draw a path from where we sit to that using the institutions that currently exist? I am not optimistic. Okay. Neither am I. So it's like, can we develop a version of cryptocurrency that functions the way that it was pitched and does not at some point early in its inception leave the door open for the Winklevi to just right. buy their way to the top? I don't I don't see that happening. Uh, well, I can't even get into the putting all your data on the blockchain futuristic sci-fi-ness of that, which you can hear more about in Dan's video. The reaction to your video, all the comments, were pretty largely positive. What was the reaction for you from the people who were like, this is bullshit? So funny enough, most of them said, sure, he's right about the way that it is right now, but like, it'll be different in the future. Well, Dan's accurate about the current state of things. Yeah. But I have faith that it won't stay that way. And that's just kind of like, that's it's a really like lame cop out. Yeah. I'm just so curious because people are so evangelical about it and people are so like, you just have fun staying poor. You just don't understand yeah. it. You're just not cool. You're telling people not to invest in this thing that is the future. And like, we all know something you don't. Yeah. Congratulations on protecting your subscribers from 13,000% APY. And right, like, exactly. Uh, no, I protected them from you. So a lot of it was just this begrudging, like, well, he's right, but it'll it'll change for, like, reasons. Of course it'll change. Like, it'll just get magically better. And it's like, trajectory is the biggest predictor of where you'll end up. Uh, and you're not headed towards the future that you say you are. So I'm, I'm looking at the future that you're actually moving towards. And then the other thing was just, like, this, like, well, he's right, but, like, why didn't he talk about the positives? And to that, it's like, well, one, because there aren't that many, and two, everybody that I've 
followed who took that route of criticism of like, why didn't he talk about the positives? They don't talk about the positives either. So I don't see why I need to bear the burden of like digging up the best that crypto has to offer. No, not my not my job. I think some people have written stuff that is about the best that it can offer. And I talk about that in my other interview. But yeah, God, Godspeed. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I literally have watched your video so many times. Can you uh, tell my audience where to find you and more of your videos and more about you? So you can find my videos on YouTube. The channel name is Folding Ideas. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Foldable Human. Otherwise, you can't really find me. I hide in my cave in Western Canada and poke my head out like a bear every now and then to drop a video. I have a Patreon. It's got enough subscribers. Don't worry about it. I'm doing fine. I will be selling an NFT of your Patreon. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. oh, it killed me. Slayed me. I'm dead now. Gabby did it. Uh, <laughs> if you find my body, if you find my b- body, it was Gabby. Yeah, so that's where people can find me. Thank you so much. Thank you. I try to keep this show to topics that affect the everyday lives of my listeners. Most of you, I assume, have no interest in crypto or NFTs. Not when you need to put gas in your cars. Not when there's kids to feed. Not when you have mountains of student loans or your landlords are raising the rent or your medical bills are nonstop due to chronic illness. What does this all have to do with you? NFTs, cryptocurrency, who cares? There are other people and podcasters who want to focus on futuristic aspects of money, and I'm not against that. But I've also done episodes about the future. I mean, if you think back to the episode I did with Garrick Bernard about money on the moon or money on Mars, we do talk about that stuff here. So if this was truly a system where, from all my research, I could believe that we could get wealth into the hands of people who didn't already have it, if I believed that this wasn't just a place for people who haven't touched a paper dollar in a decade to dump the money they wouldn't miss, look, I'd be completely down. You guys know that. But it's not. I do bristle a bit at another similarity to the current system, as Dan and I discussed, the fact that billionaires, white cis straight men largely, can act with impunity and no consequences in markets that create energy waste, scam people out of their money, and make themselves richer, and they come out largely unscathed. But when people who are expected to be perfectly woke, trans people, POC, model minorities, other queers, when they attempt to get into the system, let's say mint NFTs because someone told them it was a way to make some money, it's the same old jaunt. Do you play within the system or fight or ignore it? Who gets taken down for doing so? No one's going to go after the Winkle vibe. I found some of this same thought process in the rebuttals to Dan's poetic and eloquent takedown, though much of it, as I read it, hinges on the idea that he didn't provide an alternate solution. Fine. One reporter, Daniel Kuhn at Coindesk, in his response to Olson's video, wrote, People young and old are excited about crypto because it presents an alternative to the current economic system. Just to say one thing, those bankers Olson discussed at the beginning of his documentary, the ones that turned the U.S. housing market into a casino and blew up the economy, what happened to them? Did former Bear Stearns CEO Jimmy Kane go to jail? Did billionaire and senior chairman of Goldman Sachs Lloyd Blankfein lose his job? Crypto doesn't fix all that. It may even make it worse. But at least if done right, it eliminates moral hazard. Crypto puts responsibility on the individual, and if they lose their keys or lose their savings, that's on them. It's a high degree of responsibility, and no one forces you to buy a JPEG. So what Kuhn is saying in short is no bailouts, no government intervention, no banks, and less of a chance that someone else will lose your fortune for you. But to me, that's reactionary rather than revolutionary. 
We do need a new system, but for it to be truly new? Look, I'm not the mind to come up with that. I just got here. All I know is that it seems to be making the same people rich again. And I've been doing a bunch of research. And like, okay, maybe every so often someone else hits it big. But isn't that kind of just the same as what's not working now? I would love to hear from you. Be sure to send me an email at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 844-474-4040. You can also email me a voice memo if you prefer. Maybe I'm wrong about all this. I don't know. I'm open to being wrong. Join our online communities too. We are on Instagram, Discord, TikTok, Patreon, and Facebook. Links to all of these will be listed in the episode description. And don't forget to listen to the show the day it drops so we can get on the charts and spread the word. Also, leave us a five-star Apple review. Also, I'm probably not wrong, you guys. Write in if you feel differently, but I don't know. You'll have to be very convincing because I think I'm right here. Okay, thanks. Love you. Bye. Done.